Our sermon this morning will come from Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 1. Let us now hear from the Word of God together. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father, we now come to you with open, heart, with open arms and asking that you would speak to us and guide us. We pray that you would guide us by your word, that you would speak to us by your spirit, that you would orient our hearts towards you and worship. We pray that through the unique and often difficult instruction that reveals our own pride and our own sin, that you would soften our hearts and reorient our lives to where we see you as who you are, Lord of our lives and God of grace and mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So now we've come to the portion of the book of Colossians that is by far the most practical. You might be reminded towards the beginning, it starts very high, very doctrinal, very theologically tightly, tightly packed, and it, to where, where it keeps unfolding itself to become more and more practical. Christians, the word says, are to be honorable and kind and selfless and eager to serve and in line with God's plan for maximum gospel declaration and worship. You know, this is one of those services where uh, you, you always have in the back of your mind, you might invite someone to church with you and you just pray that the, that the service is normal or you pray that the songs aren't bizarre or in this case, you pray that the passage doesn't just point its finger at you because you're trying so desperately hard for your friend to come to church or to hear the gospel. One of our one of my wife and I's friends who are not Christians, but they were invited to church again and again, and one of our friends kept inviting them to their church, and, and they came to the, to the teaching time that morning where they did this passage. And it was a great rebuke for all of us, and so we just now submit ourselves to what the Word says, knowing that it's, it's actually good when we see what the Lord says through it and behind it and for us. I've said before, and you're not used to it in your own study of the Bible, where we thankfully know what to do with God's Word because of verbs in the text. Like, just teach me what it says. Just, just teach me what I'm supposed to do. And we often want these practical ways to know and to serve the Lord. And, and so we're 
very wonderfully given these verbs that are called imperatives. And imperatives in the Pauline letters tell us God's specific commands. In our passage, thankfully, just from a practical standpoint, our passage has eight of those imperatives. Submit, love, obey, don't provoke, obey, work, serve, and treat. It seems like this section might come across as an aside, like Paul is portraying God as glorious and his son as preeminent. And then there's this often independent or self-contained package where he's speaking just to a specific group of people and it seems like he's coming across harshly, but it's not the case at all. Paul always writes with a predictable flow, with ideas and then explanations, with actions and then results, with uh, manner and then a way or how of which that manner can be accomplished. And in Colossians, Paul takes us from the cross to the resurrection to corporate worship, and now he takes us to the home. Look at the focus of this section. Historically, he's combating the idea of what is called a Hellenistic culture, a Hellenistic culture where he is instructing the church to actually be different or to depart from those ideas and and to directly reorient their lives away from what the culture says and reorient their lives, like like how you would use a compass, towards actually Jesus himself. He wants to take them out of the culture's ideas of how to live and place them in a certain orientation that has them going forward to the very cross itself. In a Hellenistic way of life or in a Hellenistic culture, men were above everyone everywhere. And there's no ifs or buts about it. But Paul's focus on power, not only in our passage but in passages before, he shows what headship ought to look like. Look at your text. See how many times the word Lord is used. Go ahead and look down. Maybe count them to yourself. Six times is the Lord used. This is another interpretive key, not just looking for verbs, but also looking just for repetitive phrases or words that are used. This, this in many ways just tells us, what is this passage about? Is it about submission? Is it about being married? Is it about having obedient kids? Is it about being a good boss? Sure. But what it's really about is the Lord himself and Jesus as the Lord. Paul continually strings along the identification of true power and rule, and he does this by upholding Jesus himself. So instead of conforming to this Hellenistic social ethic, Paul redirects attention to the one who is truly Lord of all, and then it it allows us to see how we might live in the understanding of who Jesus is. So in keeping with the past couple of weeks, how should you as a Christian aim to live your life? That's what the last two weeks have been about, and this is going along the same path. Here, how should a Christian live? Well, we should reorient ourselves to Jesus. He's the Lord of every part of our lives. He shouldn't just be the Lord of our Sunday morning worship or even the Lord of our family, but also the Lord into our own work or overseeing of other people. Here, Paul takes us not only of what we should do, but he tells us where we should do these things and how we should do those things. Where should we have Jesus as Lord of our lives? Well, in our marriage, in our family, in our work. How are we supposed to have him be the Lord of our lives? Well, with fitting submission, with sacrificial love, with total obedience, unprovoking discipline, diligent work, 
and just management. Paul can only address the home or the work because he first addresses lordship. That's what the primary bulk of the beginning of Colossians about is that Jesus is the Lord. And if Jesus is the overwhelming supreme Lord of the church and the world, the all-sufficient Savior in whom the fullness of God totally dwells, then believers who confess this truth must express his lordship in their daily lives. Husbands, fathers, slaves, wives, children, bondservants, and masters. Hellenistic philosophers often considered, or not often, only considered women, children, and slaves to be on the same level that you might place your car when you think about a road trip. You actually don't care about your car's feelings. You just want to use it right, to get to a destination. And that's actually the culture that Paul is speaking to, that they're highly influenced by diminishing people like wives or children or even slaves. And what Paul is doing is he's taking them out of that context and refocusing their attempts to where they see everyone under the salvation of God, but with unique roles that we all get to play. Now, this text is uh, taking... Uh, the, the totality of what the church primarily looks like. And, and you might look at this text and see, well, I'm an unmarried person, or I'm a widow, or my parents don't come to church with me, or my parents aren't Christians with me, or, or I have a blended family, or I'm just here with random friends, so, so I'm not married, I'm not in a family, or I'm not a slave, so this text doesn't speak to me. But there are true principles using those examples that Paul is using that actually teach all of us how we are to live. All of us, what this text primarily teaches, is that we are to submit ourselves to the very lordship of Christ. And he uses different ways to examine this. So, there are three ways that Paul is telling us to reorient our lives towards Christ. There are three ways that Paul is telling us to reorient our lives towards Christ. That's if you're using an outline to help you pay attention or to write some notes down. We're now at point number one. First, Paul is telling us, under the inspiration of the Spirit, to reorient your marriage. To reorient your marriage. Wives, submit to your husbands. We should submit ourselves to the Spirit's teaching and exposition of God's glory in Christ here. There is no doubt what the Scriptures say here, and what they're historically saying, and what they're even currently saying to us. But there's widespread misunderstandings about the nature of headship and submission. This is why we come to this text humbly. This is why I've been, well, people have joked to me about this text for several weeks, like you know what's coming at the end of chapter 3, and it's like, yes, I do. And I'm terrified to say it in a mass crowd, but what the text so clearly tells us is how we can worship the Lord. Beginning with the meaning of the word submit, then we will discuss the the historical and literary context within this. So the meaning of what is being talked about here. So I'm going to zoom in on this passage of this text uh, more in long form than the other passages just because of the uh, the misunderstandings about it or of the hurt that's been caused from it being applied, being applied falsely. In the New Testament, the verb submit is consistently used for subordination or putting yourself under the authority of someone else. It can be used to denote subordination in many ways. We see in 1 Peter chapter 5 where young people are to submit to old people 
or we see in Luke chapter 2 or Ephesians chapter 6 where children are to submit to their parents. Or in Luke 10 where demons are to submit to the name of Christ. Or in Romans 13 and in Titus 3 and in 1 Peter 2 where citizens, meaning like Americans, are supposed to submit ourselves towards the local, state, and national authorities. Or in 1 Peter 2 where servants or employees are to submit ourselves to masters or their own employers. Or Hebrews 13 and 1 Thessalonians 5, where believers are to submit themselves to the elders' teaching within the church. Or Ephesians 5, where every believer is to submit himself or herself to every other believer in humble service. Or in Ephesians 5, where Christians are to submit ourselves towards Christ's leading. And even in Hebrews chapter 12 and James chapter 4, every believer is to submit himself or herself to God. So, so no person in any of these examples, and especially in this context of wives submitting themselves to their husbands, no person is diminished in any of these roles. In, in Genesis 1 through 2, man and woman were created with differences, obviously, and they're called to serve one another differently, clearly. This isn't an obscure pattern in the Bible either, for Christ himself, the Son of God, submitted himself to the Father's will. And God the Son certainly isn't diminished from who God the Father is, nor is the woman uh, diminished in her nature or her value or her image-bearing when she was created as a helpmate for Adam, man. This isn't an obscure pattern in the Bible, but it bucks against us. So I just want us to be reminded of, of some of the images that have been portrayed and, and carefully given to us, where Paul, in another letter, in 1 Corinthians 11, says, the head of every man is Christ, meaning every male actually has a head, and his name is Jesus. And the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So in Ephesians 5, Paul further appeals to the submission of the church to Christ as the basis of wives' submission to their own husbands. Now, submission is not grounded in any supposed superiority of the husband or the inferiority of the wife. You've got to remember, Paul is actually talking to people in a specific culture, and that culture says that women are inferior in their nature. Aristotle himself, many people think he's smart. I might agree with that. But here's a case where you actually don't want to agree with Aristotle. Aristotle says himself, let me find the text or the paragraph where he writes down that women are weaker in their nature than any man unless that man mutilates himself. Christians do not agree with that. That is not a truth given to us in the Bible. The concept of the wife being the helper that we see in Genesis chapter 2. So before the fall, when everything was very good, when the concept of the wife being given as the helper of the husband in no way implies her inferiority. And in many ways, it implies subtly to the inferiority of the man being alone. And so God in his goodness wanted to give his image bearer a helpmate, another image bearer. Her submission is rooted in this creation, not in the fall. In creation, the husband needed a wife. He was very good, except he was without her. And so God wanted it to be very good, so he made her for him, and he made her for his glory. Now, historically and, and literally, uh, literarily, we see that many believe that women 
have to submit to all men. Now, in this Hellenistic culture, they would have been called to do this wrongly, but they would have been called to do this because uh, often older men married way younger women, and so they had to protect and care because there was this vulnerable creature in the house that only a man could protect. Or they weren't allowed to be formally educated, so men had to look out for them because they walked around aimless and guideless, and they just didn't know any better. So what this culture was telling people is, you have to protect these women because they're such lesser people than you. Or many might argue theologically that Galatians 3, chapter, or Galatians chapter 3, verses 28, points out that the people of God are neither male nor female. So if they're n- neither male nor female and seeing how they're seen according to God, then we shouldn't make any division inside the marriage. There's no ideal of submission or love in the marriage because we're all equal. But what Paul is pointing out is that men and women are equal in how God saves them and how God sees them as his own image bearers, but they are given different roles within the marriage in order to glorify God and show unity within the church. Paul actually makes this point clear when he uses the same list for what's being talked about in Galatians 3 in Colossians chapter 3 verse 11, but he leaves out the idea of gender. He makes it clear that Paul Paul's point is not the superiority of one group over the other in God's elect, but what he is clearly demonstrating now is that there are different ways in which we can serve one another in marriage and within the church. If we take verses 18 and 19 together, these statements point to the unity and the mutual accountability as members of the one body of Christ. Phrases such as bearing with one another and forgiving one another, forgiving each other, or teaching and admonishing one another in the preceding paragraph, confirm the significance of this point. So what Paul is teaching here is that the different roles and functions of its members are there because of the concern for unity within the church. And that's what's at stake here. Paul is seeing the church being infiltrated from the culture, from the outside, and what he's saying is, because you are new in Christ, because you are a new creation, because you are called out by the very God himself, you are to display the glory and the majesty of Jesus in this way, and in this way, and in this way, and in this way. And he divides those up in different ways. And here we see that he divides those up based on gender. So wives are called to submit to their own husbands. Wives aren't called to submit to someone else's husband, but they are called to submit to their own husband. Also, this call of submission appears as a significant modification of the social convention reflected in this Hellenistic household code. The the Hellenistic culture says that obedience of the wife to the husband is without limit. I was at lunch with a missionary a month ago who says the thing that he has to talk about in Africa on a weekly basis is that men, it is not good to beat your wife. It is not God-honoring to beat your wife. The idea of her submitting herself to you, that is not what that's talking about. And the flip side here is what he then calls men to do is to love your wives. So the idea of submission isn't that men own their wives, but rather it's a reflection of how Jesus serves the church and the church serves Jesus. The focus on the lordship of Christ comes with a different surprise than to the husband and to the wife. 
The power of the husband is critically and considerably relativized in our passage here when compared to the other parts of culture. The emphasis on lordship is consistent with the thought of this letter that is consistently emphasizing the lordship of Christ. In our contemporary appropriation of this passage, the central point must be Christ-centered. A wife must put the Lord first. The wife does have a master, and his name is Jesus. And under the order of what God has given throughout time is that a wife is to submit herself to her husband. Now, what this doesn't mean, what this passage doesn't mean is that a wife must sit passively and endure the sin or abuse of the husband. Now, perhaps some of you come from families, or perhaps you're possibly in a situation where a husband is or was a bully to you. Or a husband is or was abusive to you. What is clear to us, if you are being abused, as a pastor, if you're being abused, you should call the police. If you're being abused, you should tell a brother or a sister. If you are being abused, your husband is derelicting his duty and to protect you like Christ protects the church. Jesus never goes out to the sheep and strikes him with a rod for the extent to hurt them. Tell an elder, it is our job and our call in many ways to protect you from harm, even if that means we physically, not just emotionally, but physically get in between you and the one who is perpetrating violence against you. Now what this passage is also not talking about is some people think that the husband can get away with whatever he wants in the name of headship, that this is his ultimate trump card, I want the house painted blue. My wife wants the house painted red. She has to submit to me. That's just tyrannical. That's not what's being talked about here. When people are traumatized by abuse, they, or abuse especially within the misuses of headship, they, they often learn about God from their trauma rather than learning about God from the Word. This is why this is so desperately needing to be understood of what submission is and what submission isn't. When we learn about God, we don't see him as an abusive father or as an abusive husband. We see him as one who gave his life over for his bride. And so what we ought to do is if you have been taken captive by someone who is hurting you against what the Bible says they ought to do, we just want to call you again to see God through the lens, not of your trauma, but of his word. And I know that's easy for me to say and often isn't hard or isn't easy for you to hear because I haven't gone through what you may have gone through. But we need to be reminded that Jesus actually sympathizes with those who have gone through abuse. He endured it. He was betrayed. He was stripped naked. He was left alone. He was placed in silence. He was put to shame according to the world and he was at a great loss. So when you endure, and what many of you have been called to endure through the mistreatment of you under the name of headship or submission, if anyone you cannot call, you can call on Jesus to protect you and to understand you, to guard you, and to see his glory through this awful sin and despair, knowing that there will come a time where perpetrators will be put to shame and you will be given a new life.
Now, if you find yourself as a husband who has abused your wife, if you find yourself as one who has misused headship, as you take the reins, if you will, for yourself and, and actually use it against her, your, your precious bride, the, the daughter of the father who gave her away, you need to recognize that, that havoc will come for sin. And you need to run from your sin. And you need to repent from your sin and turn to Jesus. Forgiveness can be given to you. But it won't if you don't call out to him for forgiveness and in repentance. So wife, yes, the text does say, and we proudly boast, then the same way that we as a church submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus, wives are to submit themselves towards their husbands, but also we see here that, that husbands, you've actually been given a more impactful role. We're to love our wives. Next, Paul addresses the role of the husband. The order of this is important. Now consider to be the head over all husbands here have to wait their turn to even receive instruction. I think Paul purposefully and linguistically and culturally did this on purpose. Paul, Paul often is sarcastic or he does like to rebuke what people think they deserve. And, and if they think they're so powerful that they should reserve, receive instructions first, Paul actually makes them wait. And here he gives it to them. And in, Hel- in a Hellenistic marital relationship, uh, the role or the focus towards the husband was about his rights. What does a man deserve? But Paul, through a Christian ethic, or what we see is biblical, Paul focuses not on the rights of the husband, but on the, on the duty of the husband, on the role that the husbands are being carried out for. They are a son of God, and now here is what their duty is. They are to love their wives. Their duty is to love their wives. A, a server not a consumer. My wife isn't mine to make me happy. My wife is mine for her to receive my love. Do you see how that changes everything? How in light of what the gospel is, where where God loved his church in such a way that he sent his son to die for what the Bible calls his bride, now our marriages, men, are to be a reflection of this, where, where someone A dad, a brother, a body of people gave this woman to you. And your job is not to use her up like an oil well, but rather to flow and pour godliness into her by loving her. It's distinctly Christian to love and to serve your wife. In Colossians, this new vision is based on the creation of a new humanity, because of this new humanity is first loved by God. This is, this is again where it just seems parallel that the idea that anything outside of God's initiated love coming for his church is just total bunk. God first loved his church. Not because we were cool. Not because we were awesome. Not because we have great decorations or sing neat songs, but he just loved us because he loved us. And here you have in your own marriage a wife and your job is to love her, Because she's your wife. We are nothing outside of God's love for us. And in Ephesians, the call to love is directly linked with Christ's love for his church. This imitation of Christ's love finds its manifestation in the marital relationship. Husbands, in Ephesians 5 verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The son's service for us, the church, on the cross and continual 
interceding for us now is the example of what a husband is called to do. One of the best pieces of advice I was given like five years before I was married. Didn't even know Brooke. If you want to follow Jesus in your marriage, my friend said, die for her and pray for her. This is what Jesus does for the church. He died for her and he prays for her now. In light of this Christological model, such love is not to be defined simply in emotional or sexual terms, but it is to be defined by the action of the husband showing deep concern for his wife. I remember being a teenager, and what do teenagers do? They're in love constantly. And I remember not having a girlfriend, and people are like, do you know what it's like to love? And I remember writing on my like Zenga blog or whatever, I totally know what it's like to love. I just have no one to love. Like, The emotions of a 17-year-old Asher are terrifying. (laughs) And I knew that there, there was this biblical example of what love is. It wasn't emotionally having these Valentine's Day feelings or movies playing it out. You've Got Mail is actually an unhelpful example to me and to us. What love is, is an action. It's a verb. It's something that you give towards your wife. And for the husband... They are to love. They're not to be selfish. They're not to be consumers. They're not even to be a lover of themselves, but just a lover of their wives. But wait, there's more for the husband. The the conjunction and is in many ways helpful to us, and here it's just another set of rebuke for the men. And do not be harsh with them. This is the example. This isn't totally the job description of what a husband is. They're to love their wives and not be harsh with them. But this is a way, this is a manner in which the husband can love their wives. Don't be harsh with them is the example. It reflects a more general inclination and attitude. In the New Testament, the verb be harsh is only used in reference in tasting something bitter. So in Revelation 8, verse 11, or in Revelation 10, tasting something bitter or tasting something sour. Have you ever given a lime to your dog? Don't do that to your husband or don't do that to your wife. The noun bitterness is used in a variety of contexts where bitterness reflects the general evil and sinful inclination or recipient of God's wrath. In Romans 3, those who have no fear of God, it says, Romans 3, verses 18, those who have no fear of God are said to be filled with what? Bitterness and cursing. In Ephesians 4, verse 31, it says, bitterness tops the vice lists that symbolize every form of malice. Therefore, if the love of one's wife reflects the general glorious love that Christ has for his people, then bitterness will not be in the motivation of the husband. So how does God want us to live? Well, he wants the wives to submit to their husbands, and he wants the husbands to love their wives and to not be harsh with them. Secondly, another way that Paul says that we ought to reorient our lives with Jesus as the focus The second way is to reorient your own home. So coming to the second stage of this passage, we get to the parenting part where Paul addresses those who are in a family relationship. First, he addresses the children. Children, he says, obey your parents in everything. 
Of course, he, he understands that if parents command their children to break the law of God, then these children should resist this. We have, we have other passages that help us form that theological understanding. But, but here, he says that children in everything, not without an escape route, children in everything, obey your parents. And notice the reason of this, because this pleases your parent, your teacher, your friend, Children, obey your parents because this pleases the Lord. The Lord is those, or is also who children are to submit themselves to. It's interesting, you know, here in this passage that about six different people, in a way, six different people are being told in all of their different life circumstances and all of their different life understandings or wisdom that's been given to them or shown to them, all these six different categories of people, and there are more categories in the church, are told the same thing. Submit yourself to the Lord first. But the most common expression that is used, the Lord, it's as if Paul is saying in the relationship that children have with their parents, they actually have a supreme person of who they ought to love and obey in a way that they can demonstrate to the world these Christian kids. God, praise, praise the Lord for him, bringing them to himself. But a way that they can demonstrate their love for the Lord is by obeying their parents by showing the world that something is different inside of them. It's as if we were to say, Lord Jesus, I want to love you and honor you so that when I want to love and honor my parents, I remind myself of how much I love you and you love me. Now, granted for young people, and teenagers especially, there, there's this huge challenge today uh, and, and I'm not beyond it. It was a challenge in my day, and it was a challenge probably in my own parents' days. But there's this huge challenge to where it is actually cool to rebel against your own parents, mostly because of peer pressure. Like, how, how much can you get away with? How much can you stir your mom or dad to anger? How much can you break that curfew or not eat your vegetables or just look at them and curse at them as if they have no authority over you? to distance ourselves from our parents, to speak callously about them, to speak ill of them, or to think what they think and do is simply medieval or old-fashioned, Paul is actually telling, te- telling teenagers and kids that they ought to obey their parents in everything. And, and honestly, I truly mean this. I think the most difficult position to be in today is to be a teenage man or woman, aiming to honor and obey their mom or dad and what the world says don't do or by comparison, don't fall into, or there's great opposition or mischaracterization of the world around them. You look at, you look at all the popular TV shows today, this is where I'm like that you know, 95-year-old man where it's like, TV today is so bad. But if you notice all the TV shows today, the dad is a moron, and the mom is mean, and the kids get to do whatever they want. Paul is actually saying that's devilish and hellish, and it doesn't bring glory to the Lord. So if you want to be a world changer, if you want to demonstrate as much of God's glory as you can, you can go to Africa and you can also obey your parents. That is a way that you will show people that you are different because you're called to do something different. Isn't it amazing that all you need to do to stick out as a great witness for Jesus is something as simple as committing yourself in heartfelt devotion to love and honor your parents? What a marvelous thing it is when a young boy or a young girl is brought to faith in Jesus and their life is transformed and their disposition towards their parents is transformed. Now, notice the difference there. The equation wasn't, isn't it great that these kids are transformed and then they're brought to a saving grace in Jesus? 
Remember, I heard it say, I don't remember who said it, but all that happens when you have a baby is there's this little sinner running around your carpet. Isn't it great that Jesus brings kids to himself and transforms your life? So child or teenager or young person, shine the light of Christ and obey your parents. It takes courage. It takes courage to swim against the tide in Jesus Christ. So this is a challenge to you young people and to you teenagers. Won't you swim against the tide? Won't you aim to stick up for and stick out for Jesus? He's the one who's given you everything. And how glorious it is when the gospel transforms you and shows his glory to others by you. But here a word, though, for the fathers, the one who are chiefly responsible for the children. I hope fathers know and understand this. I've been a recipient of a really good dad. So I I say this as someone who has seen the positive outcoming of a father who loves his child. I hope fathers know and understand that the church isn't chiefly responsible for your child. Your school is not chiefly responsible for your children. The child's own mother is not chiefly responsible for their own children. But the father, he is chiefly responsible for those who God has given him as a gift And listen to what he says. Don't provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. What do I do to provoke a child? Interestingly, it may be as simple as expecting from them the very thing that makes you proud about yourself. How many of us have heard, maybe from our own parent or other parents around us, when I was your age, I blah, blah, blah. And for Christian families, demanding a level of commitment to Jesus and demanding a level of commitment to holiness that your children, you want them to have, it will provoke them to anger, and it will cause them to be discouraged if you are calling on them to be something that you are not practicing. If they are to read their Bible for five minutes at night, shouldn't you at least read for five? If they are to treat women appropriately, then shouldn't you at least treat your wife appropriately? Kids, and I speak as one who's been one before, Kids are very watchful. They see this, and they can see the gospel either through you or in spite of you. Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, mom and dad, that this is where the gospel is primarily lived out, in the home. And so love him and please him. Children, obey your parents and fathers. Lean inwardly and lean outwardly. Love your child as God has loved you. Now third, The third way that Paul tells us to live, or a third way that he tells us to reorient our work, he now tells us that that we can do this through our vocation or through our work. Another way that we can live is to reorient our lives in our work. He continues to call the church to Jesus' lordship and obedience, and here he calls a drastic picture of how this looks. Here he calls slaves, and in this context, multitudes of men, women, boys, and girls were slaves. It was just their basic condition. The church was a minority. This isn't the Christian church of today where it's actually the most popular thing you can do is to be an evangelical Christian. Here, you would be in a terrible minority, and many of these people were slaves. Now, it's interesting, and when speaking to slaves and when speaking to masters, he didn't call out to the slaves and say, rise up and rebel. You have something they don't. Overcome them. He doesn't say this. There are several reasons for this, but chiefly among this, he wants them to demonstrate, in the church to demonstrate that the gospel 
actually works in the worst of all possible circumstances. Now, oftentimes we come to this text and we, we gloss over the idea of slavery and we say, well, this is about like working in an IBM office. I've never met a slave, but I have read books and I have seen movies and I have heard stories. Being a slave is probably the worst thing that can happen to someone. And what Paul is saying is that even in the midst of that, they are to remember and recognize that their master is actually Jesus. And they'll demonstrate God's glorifying, effective work through the gospel by submitting themselves to Jesus and by obeying their master. And if there's anyone who would understand how hard it would be to submit, it's not a kid, it's not a wife, it's a slave. Because their whole lives were under bondage. And what Paul is doing is he's telling them to obey. Notice, though, how he often turns, or how he also turns to the masters and tells them to treat their servants, those who work for them. This is where, while we can't personally identify with being a slave or a master, we can see some of these principles breaking free towards us. Some of you run a business. You haven't purchased your employees in total, but you do own a lot of their time, don't you? You have purchased a large portion of someone's life. And have you ever noticed how bad a job or how a bad boss can totally consume someone's life? We've all had bad bosses, right? Where you get an email late at night and it just incenses you or it causes you fear or it causes you anger or you're wondering if you'll even wake up the next day with that job. You ever sat in your car outside of your work and have just said, I can't go in. I'd do anything to not go in. I mean, I have to go in, but oh man, I do not want to go in. Masters, God's word said, treat your servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master. In the same way that God is good to these masters, both in general and in specific grace, they are to be good and just to those who serve them. You see how this would work out in a place where both the Christian was a servant and the Christian was a master. Both had different roles. Someone has to work. Someone has to oversee. Both have different roles. Both have different responsibilities, but they equally had a master in Jesus. They, they equally have an, an identity in who Jesus is. They both are made in the very image of God who they first serve. And this should soften the leadership that masters use, shouldn't it? Knowing that who he's been treating and who he's talking to is not actually his but the Lord's. This changes the way that a, that a father would parent his own kid, knowing that, that, yes, this child is mine, but he's also a child of God. He's an image bearer of the God. This changes the way that a wife might submit to her husband and a husband might love his wife by recognizing that my wife, yes, on paper she is my wife, but she's actually a daughter of God. And that changes the way I love it changes the way I serve. It changes the way I treat. It changes the way we open up our home and run our home, open up our business and run our business, open up our family and operate our family. He's dealing with servants of the Lord Jesus, and he's telling them to demonstrate God's glory and how they treat one another. The gospel's instruction actually changes our perspective in the workplace and in the family and in the marriage. Many of us have the emotions of being obsessed with our current situation. But what Paul instructs us through this understanding of vocation, what Paul instructs us with is 
giving us a view in which we can look through these circumstances and actually see the Lord. If you've ever run a long race, you can't just look at your race a mile at a time. You have to look forward to the prize. I remember when I was learning to drive or when you go to the driving school, they, they say don't look five feet in front of you. Always look 100 feet in front of you. Keep your eyes forward. And what Paul is saying here is in the midst of your circumstances, and you got to remember, he's talking to slaves here. See the Lord who's the good master. See the Lord who's the good Lord. And don't serve as a man pleaser, but serve as a Christ pleaser. Lord Jesus, I'm doing this for you, is their cry every day, as much as it might pain them. In reality, the good worker is working well, and he sees the true master. So in conclusion, having highlighted the significance of the lordship of Christ and the servanthood of all the believers, one must not deny the intent of this passage is to address the specific household relationships in the early church, and we should reflect the same, the relationships that were involved in, in real struggle and in real conflict. Remember, he wasn't writing this to people who had it all together but he's reorienting their view, not on himself, not on their surroundings, but on Jesus himself. After all, the historical slaves addressed could also assume this dual role as slaves and believers, or children as believers, or husbands and wives as believers. And we see other cases of this, like in other letters that Paul would write, or more purposefully in the letter of Philemon. Though the emphasis on the significance of the gospel for everyday existence, Paul provides a striking illustration that demonstrates the need for all relationships to be reconsidered in the light of the gospel. What he's saying is you need to reorient yourself, often in a continual basis, to aim yourself at Jesus. And that's what this whole book about is about. The preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glorious transformation that he gives to people, and that from this, most practically and most pleasurably to them and to himself, in the most basic relationships of all, he speaks to spouses, family members, and workers, and he tells them to submit themselves to the lordship of Christ. The Danish theologian and philosopher Kierkegaard, in speaking about his own father, says, you know the worst thing in the world for a child is not that the child should be led by a free-thinking father, or an atheist father, or a secular father. But the worst possible thing for a child is one who has a father who professes all the orthodoxies and doctrines of the Christian faith, but whose life before his children makes it so plain that he doesn't really trust the Lord at all. Our example in the person and in the work of Jesus shows us that we have a God who we can submit ourselves to, And not just because he's glorious and magnificent, though he very much is, but we can submit ourselves to him because he endured for our sake the suffering that we deserved. And we can follow him. We can submit ourselves to him because he is only a father who knows love towards his children. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning freshly reminded of the goodness of your son, Jesus. We pray that we would submit ourselves to him, that we would see him as he is presented to us in the text, and that we would reflect a life that is reoriented away from our sin, away from our culture, away from ways we think are right, and reorient ourselves towards him in everything. Our Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.